So we are glad that you're here today. I usually preach in, in, in series, but this is kind of a, I guess, a standalone message you'd say today. Now, the next couple of weeks after this, you know, we, we've been walking through the book of Ecclesiastes, and one since I finished it up uh, at, at Easter, but decided we didn't go through every verse in it. I'm going to go back and do a couple more messages over the next couple of weeks is the plan. But today, uh, I want to preach a message the title of is the first and only Christian sermon. The first and only Christian sermon. And so we look at Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And the reason I call it the first and only Christian sermon, it really is the first apostolic sermon, uh, the day of the birth of the church. And then when you read through the book of Acts, there's uh, several sermons that are recorded there. They're really probably summarized. I don't think they're uh, verbatim. If they are, these guys preached a lot shorter than I did, or than I do. But uh, uh, they're, they're just, the core of the message is the same. But the reason I call it the first and only Christian sermon is because unless someone is preaching what Peter preached, it's not a Christian sermon. There's one Christian sermon. Our message today is still the message of the apostles uh, as we teach uh, the New Testament that, of course, was grounded in the Old uh, Testament. And so I, I want you to consider that. But, but this is really what, uh, what else I want you to do today. So I want you to consider your own life, your own heart, your own spiritual condition. And uh, just consider... Have you responded to this message? What do you believe uh, about this message? Do you believe uh, the message that Peter preached? And if you do, how have you responded to it? What have you done with it? We're going to do something this morning uh, that we haven't done in over a year. We're going to have just an old school, come forward kind of invitation. Okay, and uh, there's going to be some people up front, some of our pastors and, and, and their wives that receive you, talk through this with you. Um, if you're worried about COVID, which I imagine if you're here in the room, you're not too worried about it. Um, uh, not everybody, but at least the ladies, Rusty, have had COVID, uh, are in their 90-day immune period. So if you're worried about that, go to one of the ladies or, or, or go to Rusty, who did the baptisms, um, not to me or Philip, because as far as we know, we haven't had COVID. Uh, I've had one shot, but, uh, you know, whatever that means. Uh, but uh, So we're going to invite you to come forward and publicly profess your faith in Christ, we're going to invite you if you need to today. And I'm going to explain this as we go. We've done this before. It's been several years. But if you need to be baptized, we're going to invite you to take a bold step of obedience and do that on the spot. You say, I don't have clothes, anything like that. We got you covered. We got all the clothes, towels you need, people that would help you with that. And you say, why would I do that? Well, hang on and listen to the passage. Okay, then we're gonna, I'm going to preach quicker. It's going to be real simple. I'm just going to try to help you understand what Peter was saying and ask you how would God speak to your heart and how uh, do you need to respond uh, to this today. And so just in a nutshell, this is the Christian message. It's very simply that Jesus died for you, that he rose from the dead, and whoever calls on him and repentance and faith will be forgiven and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's Christianity in a sentence. That's the message of the New Testament in a sentence. Jesus died for you. 
He rose from the dead. You're invited to call on him in repentance and faith. And if you do, you're forgiven of your sins and you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. I want to show you that in scripture and try to unpack that and, and, and help you, uh, you know, apply that, help you take the step that, that you need uh, to take today. You say, where does baptism uh, come into that? Well, you know, we're saved by repentance and faith. That's our inward response to God. But the outward way that uh, we express that is through believer's baptism by immersion. You see, you know, we, we use things like, and, and if you're online, we would encourage you to do this, to let us know that you've responded to the gospel today. You, know, you can text TLC Decision to 94,000. You can do that if you're in the room. There's the connection cards under the chairs. You can fill that out. But, but the point of that is just to let, for someone to be able to let us know that they've made some kind of spiritual decision so we can follow up with them and help them with their growth. That's why we ask people to do that. The only way you make your public profession of faith biblically is through believer's baptism by immersion. Now, it's not what saves you, but I mean, I wish we could baptize people on the spot every week. I wish that could be the invitation every week because that is a biblical invitation. Repent, believe, that saves you. You're saved at that moment, and we'll, we'll unpack this as we get into it. But then, as quickly as you can, be baptized to profess your faith in Christ. That's what you see continually throughout the book of Acts. So let's, uh, let's look at this, and let, let's start. We'll gonna take just a few minutes and give you the context in the first few verses. This is kind of a long chapter. I want to give you the context, and then I, I want us to look at the message that Peter actually shares today. So as you come to Acts chapter 2, you know, what's going on is that they were waiting on uh, the coming of the Holy Spirit like Jesus had told them to do in Acts chapter 1. So just to, to set that up, let me read Acts 1, 4 through 8. And it says, And being assembled together with them, he, meaning Jesus, commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You have heard from me, for John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So they were waiting on that. They were waiting for the fulfillment of that. Well, here's the fulfillment at the beginning of chapter 2. It says, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they, the, the 120 disciples, were all with one accord. They were united together in one place. They were in this upper room. They were praying. They, they were obeying Jesus. They were waiting on the promise of the Holy Spirit. And it says, suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each, each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak with other tongues, began to speak in other languages, we'll see is what's happening here, as the Spirit gave them uh, utterance. So uh, the, the context is, this is uh, the, the birth of of the church. God is doing a supernatural miracle uh, where the Holy Spirit, who in the Old Testament came and went on people, is now coming to indwell all Christians, and he is creating the body of Christ. He's creating the church. Now, uh, what's going on here is uh, there were devout Jews from all around the world gathered together 
to celebrate what was called the Feast of Weeks, which took place 50 days after Passover. It was one of the three pilgrim feasts in Judaism, so people would travel from all around the known world at that time to come and celebrate this harvest feast. So there's all these different Jews that are scattered around the world. They're coming and joining in this time. Look at what it says. It says, they were dwelling in Jerusalem, uh, Jews, devout men, and, and just hang on, Jews, devout men, hang on to that, we're going to come back to that in a minute, from every nation under heaven. So God is fulfilling the great commission immediately because he's bringing people to hear the gospel who are then going to take the gospel back to the countries they came from. Uh, this is the missionary heart and the wisdom of God. And it says, when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. This is one of the questions that came up in the Q&A last week, you know, about spiritual gifts and do spiritual gifts continue today? Uh, I believe spiritual gifts continue today. It's a secondary issue, but I also believe based on this text and it's the first time it's used in the Bible, so I think it defines it when it's used other times, that the gift of speaking in tongues is the ability to speak a language that you've never actually heard. It's a real known language. It's not some kind of gibberish. It's not some kind of heavenly uh, language. It's a missionary gift. There's not really a need for it where everybody uh, speaks the same language. But it was also given here as a means to communicate the gospel, but to authenticate the gospel, to authenticate that God was working, that God was moving, to show that he was birthing uh, his, his church. And, and so it says they were all amazed and marveled, uh, saying to one another, look, are not all these who speak Galileans and how is it that we all hear each in our own language in which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, and I made, through that, made it through that without a wreck. There, there's the first miracle of the day. Uh, we, were, uh, we hear them speaking in our own tongues. Once again, our own tongues, our own language, the wonderful works of God. So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? Others mocking said, they're full of new wine. They're saying, it's only nine o'clock in the morning, but they're drunk. They're making fun of them. Now, before we move on, we're about to get to the, the meat of this. Uh, like I said, I want you to think just a second. He said, these were Jews, they were religious, but it says they were devout. They were devout enough to travel from wherever they lived in, around the world to come to Jerusalem for this feast. Now, that means they either walked, they rode some kind of animal there, probably. It's not like they jumped on a plane and went there. They're devout. They're committed. It took them a while to get there. It took them a while to get back. They're taking time off of work. And so part of the context, part of the background that we need to understand here is, is, is as we consider this message that Peter preaches is that being religious, even devoutly religious, is not enough to make us right with God. I mean, that's what he's going to say to these people. 
He's not going to say anything like, you know, celebrating this feast, celebrating Passover, observing the Jewish festivals, observing the Jewish rituals, your good deeds, your good works, traveling here. None of this was earning them favor or credit with God. So it's important to understand this. So some of the people, though, are making fun of them. And so Peter stands up to address that, but he takes it as an opportunity And he's going to preach a message from Scripture. He's going to use two Old Testament texts, Joel 2 and Psalm 16, and use their personal experience in seeing Jesus risen from the dead to communicate the message to them. But he's also doing something else, something we need to learn to do. He's interpreting his experience by Scripture. And in doing that, and you see the apostles doing this through the book of Acts. You've already seen it in Acts chapter 1. You can see it in Acts chapter 15. They're establishing Scripture as the authority for believers and for the church. Not even them as apostles, but Scripture. Is Scripture the authority for our lives? Well, how do we know if it's our authority? Well, do we believe what it says to believe? Do we do what it says to do? Do we interpret our experience by it? Because the world says that the, the great authority in life is our experience. You be who you want to be. You do what you want to do. You be happy. How can someone invalidate your experience? But God says we're to evaluate and interpret our experience, if it's good or bad, right or wrong, true or false, through his word. And that's what Peter is doing here. He, they're, they're, some of these people were mocking them, saying you're drunk. Peter's saying, we're not drunk. This is what God has predicted would happen, and here's the fulfillment of it. Look what he says as he goes to Joel chapter 2. He says, Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. For these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. 9 a.m. in the Jewish way of reckoning time. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Let me stop and explain something. Some of you maybe have heard people talk about the last days and talk about prophecy and the return of Christ and all the things that are supposed to happen. Let me explain this to you. In Scripture, last days is a time period that started with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus that goes on until Jesus comes again the second time. In a sense, that was inaugurating it. Now, maybe we're getting to the end of the last days. I don't know. The Bible tells us no one knows when Jesus is going to come back. We believe he is going to come back. But the last day started then. We continue in it now. And, uh, it, but it was inaugurated in a sense by Jesus coming, him dying, him rising from the dead, him going back to heaven, and now God creating the church by pouring out his spirit uh, at, at this time. And, and, and so he says, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. Uh, And this has to do, you know, tribulation, final judgment, Jesus coming back, that kind of thing. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And then we come to verse 21 where he concludes this um, quotation from the book of Joel. And really, I think this is kind of the text for his message. And so we've done the setup. Now I just want to take a few minutes and and walk us through this message. But here's his text. It shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord 
shall be saved. It shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so what he's getting ready to do in this message, he's getting ready to show them that the Lord is Jesus. And so the message is that whoever calls on the name of Jesus in repentance and faith will be saved. Now, when we explain the word saved, maybe you know what it means. Maybe you've just heard it. If you've been around East Tennessee, you may have heard somebody say, you need to get saved, or I got saved back then, or you need to get born again, or something like that. What's that mean? To save is to rescue. It's kind of like if I were in the lake drowning and Jeremiah jumped in and saved me, and he pulled me to shore. He saved me. He rescued me. He brought me from death to life. And, and, and the cross is God's great rescue mission, where Jesus jumped into our sin and rescued us, saved us, pulled us from death to life. And, and so salvation is that when we repent and place our faith in Jesus, we're forgiven, we're justified, we're declared righteous by God. Uh, the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of us, He's now sanctifying us. He's helping us to grow, transform us, transforming us more and more into the image of Christ. And someday we're going to go to heaven and be perfected there. The Bible calls it glorification. So if you're saved, you have been saved, you are being saved, you will be saved. It, it, he transforms our life through that. Say, so how do you know if you've been saved or not? Well, it has to do with what you believe and what's happened in your life. Is there fruit? Is there fruit of change? But the message is that whoever calls on the name of Jesus in repentance and faith will be saved. Here's what Romans 10, 9 through 13 says. It says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, uh, one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord over all, this is a great phrase, is rich to all who call upon him. Listen, if you call on the name of the Lord today, he is rich in grace and mercy to save you. Where grace, where sin abounds, grace abounds even more. And then Paul writes, for whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Once again, quoting from this same verse in the book of Joel in the Old Testament. So the message is that whoever calls on the name of Jesus in repentance and faith will be saved. Are you saved have you called on the name of Jesus in repentance and faith and been forgiven of your sins and received the gift of uh, the Holy Spirit? Has your life been changed? Is, is there fruit there? Number two, the message is Jesus. The message is Jesus. That's what Peter unpacks over the next several uh, verses. And, and he does that in five different ways. The message is Jesus, first of all, his life and ministry. Look at verse 22. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by uh, God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. In other words, he's saying, you can't deny this. 
You saw him do this. Miracle were the actual supernatural acts that he did. Wonders is the response that it evoked. Signs, it talks about that a lot in, in, in John's gospel. Sign, uh, the miracle was a revelation of who he was. He was showing himself to be God and to have the power of, of God. Uh, Peter's preaching his life and his ministry. The, uh, Jesus came, he lived a perfect sinless life. He lived in the power of the Holy Spirit. He did the will of God. He went about doing good, showing himself to be the Messiah. But the message is not only his life and his ministry, the message is his death. Look at the next verse. It says, him, Jesus, being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. Now, couple of things to notice about this. You know, one of the questions last week was about, you know, how we can have free will and God be in control and those kind of things. And I can't explain it, but I know the Bible claims both of those things coexist together in some kind of mystery. And this is one of the many verses that, that, that show us this. He says, Jesus was delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. And, and, and really what he's saying is it was foreordained. Jesus is the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. Jesus died as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. For Christ has also once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, uh, in order to bring us to God. 1 Peter 3.18, part of it anyway. So he's saying this was God's plan but he says, you have taken by lawless hands of crucified and have put to death, but you're responsible too. But do you understand, that doesn't, just doesn't speak to them, it speaks to us. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. It was all of our sin and all of our hands that put Jesus on the cross. Um, I've read before that when Mel Gibson was filming The Passion of the Christ and the scenes where they're driving the nails uh, into Jesus' wrist and feet, that that was actually Mel Gibson's hands that were doing that because he wanted to say, that was me that did that to Jesus. We all did that to Jesus. That's what this text is saying to us. We're guilty he said, and, and he's like doing it right in their face where this happened. Now, some of these people, you know, they're coming from other places, but some of these people in Jerusalem when it happened were probably a part of it. And, and Peter is boldly saying, you're guilty. We're all guilty. Doesn't matter how religious we are. Doesn't matter how devout we are. The Bible says that our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. But then what he really focuses on in about the next 10 verses is the resurrection of Jesus. Because he says, you know, you crucified him, but God raised him up, having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by it. For David says concerning him, I foresaw, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. He's quoting from the 16th Psalm here. He says, you have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. And, and then here's Peter's exposition of this. He says, men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. 
And, and I think there's an implication there. He's like, you can go check it out. But understand where he's preaching this. He's preaching this in Jerusalem less than two months after Jesus was crucified. Is it the implication here? Go check out Jesus' tomb. See if you can find a body there. Um, said he's both dead and buried. His tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ, the Messiah. He would descend through David to sit on his throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses, therefore being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. And he gives three proofs, so to speak, of the resurrection here. One is fulfilled prophecy. He's like, this was in the Old Testament. It's happened in Jesus. Two, eyewitness testimony. He's like, we saw it. And remember, he's saying this to people who were part of killing Jesus. It wasn't that long ago that they were running for their lives. They were hiding. How'd they get so bold? The biblical explanation is they saw Jesus alive. He said, I don't believe in resurrection. Okay, maybe it didn't happen, but what happened to bring this about? You got to come up with some kind of explanation. Where'd the church come from? Where'd the Bible come from? We, we know historically that, that, that Paul persecuted Jews. He, he says what changed him was seeing the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. If that's not the explanation, what is the explanation? But then Peter's also saying that what they're seeing today that it, this is proof that Jesus rose from the dead, that he is the Messiah, and now God is inaugurating the last days, this messianic age, by sending the Spirit. You know he sent the Spirit because of this speaking in, in your own languages. And so he's saying these things demonstrate that the resurrection really happened. So we see his life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection, then his exaltation. Look at what verses 33 through 35 say. say, therefore being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. For David did not descend or ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, the Lord said to my Lord. And there's no way to understand that verse apart from the Trinity. The Lord said to my Lord. The father said to the son, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. So Jesus was exalted. He, was, he ascended to heaven. He's ruling and reigning at the right hand of the father. He's interceding for us. He's applying to us the benefits of what he accomplished in his death, burial, and resurrection. See, that's what, part of the reason why Jesus had to rise from the dead. A dead savior would do you no good because he can't intercede for you now. And that's what Jesus is doing. That's how we can pray. That's how we can worship. That's how we can come in to the presence of God. And then the last thing about Jesus he talks about is his nature here in verse 36. <clears throat> he says, therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. He's talking about his nature. So Jesus is Lord. He's almighty God. He's the Christ, he's the Messiah, the Son of God, the one sent to be our Savior. So here's what Peter said so far. 
that you can be saved, you can be rescued from your sins by calling on the name of Jesus in repentance and faith. Why? Because Jesus is the Lord. He's the Messiah who came and died for you and rose from the dead and has ascended to the right hand of the Father. So let me just stop and ask a question. What do you believe about that? Do you believe that's true? Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God who died for you and who rose from the dead? Now, if you say no, that's your prerogative. If you say I'm not sure, let's talk about it. If you say yes, here's the follow-up question, and this is going to lead us to the last part of this. The follow-up question is, what have you done with it? Because just head knowledge doesn't save us. Just mental assent to some truths doesn't save us. The Bible says in James that the demons believe and tremble. They believe in the sense they know who Jesus is, but there's a difference in knowing about someone and actually responding to someone in saving faith because biblically the word faith implies commitment to, reliance upon, rest in. Are you committed to resting in, relying on Jesus Christ? That's biblical saving faith. So, Peter says this to us. Our response to this message inwardly is repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus that is confessed outwardly through believer's baptism by immersion. Look at what he says here, and this is the last couple of verses we'll read. He says, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. It's like this message stabbed them. It's the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And if you're saved, you know what I'm talking about because this happened to you when you got saved. God did a work in your heart to both reveal your sin against the holy God and, and to reveal who he is and your need for him. You can't be saved apart from that. It's a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. And so uh, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? In other words, we know we're guilty and, and, and we know Jesus rose from the dead, so what do we do now? And, and, that, and that's the question we ought to ask every time we hear God's word preached. What do I do? Well, note his answer. He says, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and your children and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. He calls. It's, it's a divine work. Now, sometimes people get confused about this verse, and they say, does this mean baptism saves you? Does this mean you're saved by repentance and not by faith? Well, let me just take a couple minutes and explain this. You know, later in this chapter, it talks about them believing. In other sermons in the book of Acts, it talks about repentance. It talks about faith. Uh, sometimes it does them individually. Sometimes it does them together. Repentance and faith are not synonyms, but they are inseparable. They're, they're two sides of the same coin. If you repent, it's because you believe. You can't really have faith without repenting. Repentance is a U-turn. It's, it's, it's a change of mind that leads to a change of heart, that leads to a change of action. 
It's seeing Jesus for who he is. It's being convicted of our sin, being broken over our sin. Not just saying, oh, I'm not perfect, I messed. It's like I have sinned against the holy God and there is nothing within me that can make myself right from him. It's turning from our self-effort and our self-control and turning to rely on, rest in, be committed to Christ in him alone, because we believe in him, because we believe this is true, we believe this is real, we believe he's the son of God, we believe he died for us, and we believe that he rose from the dead. Listen, you can have head knowledge, but apart from repentance, which is a gift of God, it's not a human effort, it's not just reform and trying to be better, it's, it's a change of mind that leads to a change of heart. But apart from repentance, there is no salvation. You know, Ravi Zacharias was called the greatest Christian apologist of our era. But, you know, it's been shown that he was a complete fraud, a fake. Spent, you know, years abusing women. There's no evidence he ever repented of that before death. So I'd say there's a really good chance that the greatest Christian apologist of all time is in hell right now because he never repented. Now, I don't know that, but... I mean, just head knowledge, just verbal assent to Jesus Christ does not save you. There has to be a heart change. They were cut to the heart. So we turn from our sin. We turn to God through Jesus, trusting him. You say, well, you know, do I have to be baptized to be saved? Because, you know, go put verse 38 back up there again, if you would, Aaron. Um, you know, he says, Repent and let every one of you be baptized. And so, does that go together? Well, let me explain something to you. If you study this in the Greek, repent is second person plural. What does that mean? That means in East Tennessee-ism, he's saying, y'all, repent. <laughs> like, all of you, repent. All of you, turn to God through Christ. But then, this phrase, let every one of you be baptized, is third person singular, What's that mean? What he's saying is all of you, every one of you, repent. Those of you who do repent, be baptized. So here's what we believe about baptism. It's a symbol. It doesn't save you. There's nothing magical about it. We're saved. We're cleansed from our sins by the blood of Jesus Christ. And like the moment that we call on the name of the Lord in repentance and faith, we are saved. This is when I've talked to people about who believe in baptismal regeneration before. I've asked this question. If someone does what Romans 10, 9 through 13 says, if they believe in their heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, they confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord, and they call on the name of the Lord, are, they, are you saved at that moment? Or are, are you saved when you get baptized, whether it's five minutes or five days or, or five months later? If, if someone says that, you know, it's when you get baptized, they don't believe the gospel. They believe in baptismal regeneration. You're saved at that moment, but the way you outwardly confess that, the way you publicly profess your faith in Christ is by being baptized. And you ought to do it as quickly as you can. And here's the thing. If you say Jesus is Lord, why would you not take the first step of obedience that he commands you? I mean, how does that fit together? I understand sometimes there's circumstances, but sometimes it's just disobedience. I mean, how do we say, Jesus, you're my Lord. I'm turning from my sin. I'm turning my life over to you. I'm trusting you, but I'm not going to do the first thing you tell me to do. I mean, I just don't see quite how that lines up. So 
the response to the message, as God does a work in your heart, repent and believe and then confess that through believer's baptism by immersion. You say, why do we believe in immersion? Because it's what you see in the picture in the Bible, Jesus in the Jordan River, you know, the Philip took the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8, so they said they went down into the water. It's what the word means. Baptized means to make fully wet. It's the picture of Romans chapter 6, you know, dead to sin, buried, raised up to walk in the newness of life. That's exactly uh, what Al and Mary Beth uh, pictured for us by going under the water, coming up out of the water. They, picked, they preached a visual sermon of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and their death to sin and their resurrection to live in the newness of life in Jesus Christ. And so he he tells us here then that when we respond to this message in repentance and faith, that we receive the gift of salvation, which means God forgives us of our sins. He makes us right with himself. And we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, which means God's spirit comes to live on the inside of us. And he's with us. And he's there to make us new. He's there to convict us, guide us, help us, strengthen us, encourage us, teach us, change us, to help us to grow into the image of Christ. He is the strength for us living our lives. Listen, we we need uh, Jesus' forgiveness to know God, and we need the Holy Spirit to be able to live life. So, bottom line, are you saved? Are you saved? Have you repented of your sins and placed your faith in Jesus Christ? And if you have, have you obeyed the Lord and publicly confessed your faith boldly like 3,000 people did this day in what could have led to persecution? But they're just kind of drawing a line in the sand and saying, hey, I'm not ashamed. I'm living for Jesus. I want you to know it. And this is the way I'm going to take this first step to show you. So I want to ask if you would to bow your heads and close your eyes. The band's going to come back in a minute. We're going to sing a song.